Good morning. How are y'all doing this morning? Hope you're doing well. Hope you're ready uh, to open up God's Word uh, together. I hope He has a, a message for us. Uh, a couple of years ago, I don't know if any of you are interested in science uh, or so forth, but for those of you who are, you would remember on July 4, 2012, physicists made an incredible announcement. It's a kind of an announcement that only comes around every hundred years or so. Uh, perhaps you remember the news story about this, but for 50 years there had been theories by physicists that there was this particle called the Higgson boson particle. And this particle, in their opinion, was fundamental to the shaping of the universe. It has everything to do with the matter that we see. The problem is they were never able to see this particle. They just believed that it existed, right? Until in 2012, with all this fancy equipment out in Europe, they were finally able to see what they thought was a glimpse of the Higgson boson particle. It was a huge, huge deal. And uh, I think that's so interesting, isn't it? Here are these scientists for 50 years who believed in something that they couldn't see. And the reason they believed in it is because of what they could see. The evidence of the work around them. They believed in the particle because they could see things in the world that pointed towards it. And the reason I like that story is because as we continue our series in the New Testament book of Hebrews together as a church called The Supremacy of Jesus, we, as Pastor Brian mentioned, come to probably the most famous chapter, if not in the entire Bible, for sure in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, if you were raised in the church, you know Hebrews 11, right? It's Sunday school flannel graph dreams, right? It's, all a, it's, it's this chapter, this incredible story about all these people of amazing faith. We, we look at them, and these are like the heroes of our faith. We know these people. And it's just filled with people. But here's the thing. It's filled with people who, just like those physicists, though they couldn't see God, they believed He was there because of the evidence in their lives. The evidence in the world. One of the things i got to tell you I have loved about studying this passage uh, this week is, you know, I grew up in the church. Hebrews 11, come on, it's so familiar to me. I mean, I've, I've learned it, I've learned it, I've learned it. And yet, honestly, I've never really studied it in the larger context of the entire book of Hebrews, which is what we've been doing as a church, right? So often we take this chapter of faith and we examine it, we take it out, we look at all these individual stories. However, let me just remind you what we're doing here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to a group of Christians Christians who were considering abandoning their faith in Jesus. Why? Because persecution and trial and hardship had come upon them. But we've been seeing for 10 chapters now this thing over and over again. Maybe you're getting tired of writing this, but it's the big idea of the letter of Hebrews there. If you're on your notes, if Jesus is supreme, this letter is all about the supremacy of Jesus, then he's writing this struggling Hebrew church that he deserves our whole life. He deserves our whole life, no matter what. And so instead of backing down, instead of abandoning the faith, he's encouraging them to persevere. And listen, that is really the context of Hebrews chapter 11, right? In fact, here's a good thing for you, for, for any of you who read your Bibles throughout the week. Anytime you read your Bible, it's always a good uh, question to ask. What comes before what I'm reading right now and what comes after what I'm reading right now? You may or may not know this, but chapters, you know, we look at chapters and verses. Those were human editions. It didn't come, these letters didn't come with chapters and verses for these early churches. Uh, we put those in in order to help us better understand, I don't mean we as in me, I mean this was done years ago, 
but it was to help us better understand it. But sometimes, as you know, humans can make mistakes. And so chapters are, might not be started in the right place, or they might not end in the right place. And so this week I was kind of looking, well, what comes before Hebrews 11? I'm so familiar with the first verse of Hebrews 11, but what comes before that? And I want us to look at the end of Hebrews 10. For 10 chapters, this author has been talking about the supremacy of Jesus, and he comes to the application in verse 36. He says, you, church, need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised and now he's quoting the Old Testament, which he loves to do. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous ones will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. And now the very last verse of Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Can we read this out loud together? It says, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. In chapter 11, then, listen, it's not just a chapter of inspiring stories for us to feel good about the heroes of the faith. This is life and death for this church, friends. This is about not shrinking back in the face of life's challenges and hardships which are sure to come. From history, in fact, we know several years when this letter was written afterwards, this church, we believe it's the church in Rome, underwent some of the most terrible persecution under the mad emperor Nero. Any of you studied him in history, you know he was just evil. He was evil to Christians. So this letter couldn't have come at a better time for this church. And the message of Hebrews 11 for them and for us today is simply this, if you're on your notes. It is only by faith we can persevere in Christ. Yes, it's a chapter of faith, but it's faith that helps us to persevere in Christ, to not shrink back verse 39 says. So if you would, let's take our Bibles and turn them to Hebrews 11. We're learning to be first-handers in God's Word together, so I encourage you, hopefully you brought your own and you're getting used to where Hebrews is. If you didn't bring your own Bible, that's all right. We love to provide some and the seat in front of you there. You can find one of those hopefully around you, and you can find Hebrews 11 on page 843. Now let me just tell you, we're not going to be going through the entire chapter of Hebrews 11 this morning. However, I do encourage you to read it on your own sometime uh, this week. I gave you homework several weeks ago. How many of you read some of those chapters in Leviticus, be honest? Wow. So none of you are going to read Hebrews 11. Great. Okay. Well, if you're in a life group, I'm kind of making you read Hebrews, the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, so hopefully that uh, helps you this week. But I really want to focus most today on defining faith. I mean, isn't that a word we hear so much today? Do we even know what that means anymore? It's so overused, like Christianese, right? We just have these words, but do we really know what they mean? And then I want to look at the last part of chapter 11, because the author, yes, is going to talk about some of these heroes uh, from the past. We're going to learn some about that, but really, he comes to the whole heart of the matter, the whole reason he wrote this chapter, okay? So that's where we're headed. Let's start then by defining faith. Would you read verse 1 out loud with me on your notes there? It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There are two things we notice about faith here. First, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hope and faith in the New Testament are inextricably linked. You cannot separate these two things. Faith is being sure of what we hope for will in fact take place. And the reason 
we have hope is because God said it's going to take place. And God can't lie. God always fulfills His promises. And so I have faith that God will fulfill that. Faith is this assurance, this conviction of the hope that I have, the reason that I'm living. Or if you're following on your notes, I put it like this. Faith is complete confidence God will fulfill His promises. So often today, we use the word hope, though, and we mean something like uncertain desire. Like, I hope it doesn't rain today. We don't know. Meteorologists don't know. You know that by now, right? (laughs) Or I hope I pass this test, even though I didn't study. Or I hope Steve doesn't talk so long again today. Or perhaps you've given up hope on that by now in your life. But listen, hope is not positive thinking. It's not sentimentality. It's not optimism. For believers, hope, it comes from inside. It comes from this inward assurance that we have. Not based on our circumstances, as we say. But based on God's character and God's word. And God always fulfills his word. His promises will come true. So as a Christian, what are some of the things we hope for? Well, we hope for Christ's return, right? Titus 2.13. Why? I mean, just like, well, that'd be great if that happened one day. No, 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 because he said he's coming again, and we hope for that. We hope for our future glorification. Why? Because he said one day these earthly bodies are going to be made That sounds good to me. And we hope for the ability to reign with Christ, 2 Timothy 2.12, as his co-heirs and conquerors. Again, why do we hope for that? hope for that and i hope for it not blindly i i hope for it with this inward assurance that says because god said this this will pass this will come true the second way the author describes faith is the conviction of things not seen and i love this i want you to if you're using your message notes you know the word there in uh, the translations is conviction but literally in the greek it means the evidence the proof of things not seen isn't that interesting it's just like those physicists who couldn't see the boson or the Higgs, Higgs boson particle. But because of the evidence all around them, they believe. And in the same way, friends, if you're following, biblical faith is a certitude in the evidence of the unseen presence of God. We can't see God, but we can see what God is doing. And there is certitude in that. There is faith. Amen? The best example I've ever seen uh, of faith comes from uh, the third Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Some of you have seen this. I've shown this before. I don't apologize for showing this before. I mean, you can't get better than this. Uh, If you remember, Indiana Jones' dad is dying, and so he needs to rescue him, and he comes to this moment where there's this giant chasm, and he has to take a step of faith. Let's take a look at this clip. Can you 
must hurry. Come quickly. It's a leap of faith. I love that clip, and you're going to totally miss it if you don't catch this, right? Did Indiana Jones take a blind step of faith? No. no. He couldn't see the bridge, but he had evidence that it was there, right? He had a book. He had years of study, years of research. He knew somewhat, though he couldn't see it, that it was going to be there. Guess what? We got a book too, don't we? And you're holding it in your lap. And we can see evidence, even though we can't see God, we see evidence of His reality all around us today. That's faith. Faith, uh, if you're on your notes, I just kind of summed it up. This is a working definition for us this way. Faith is a certitude, a certainty, uh, whatever word you want to use, a confidence, a conviction that looks forward to God's promises. We take God at His word. We have hope. That he will fulfill his promises because he always does and looks up to the unseen reality of God's presence. The evidence that God really is at work all around us. It's those dimensions of faith that enable people to press on, to not shrink back, to persevere. That's why verse 2 goes on to say, this is what the ancients were commended for. When believers have faith, when you have faith, you have confidence in God's promises and His presence. And you receive God's approval. Isn't that what we want most? It's what I want most as one of His disciples, as His son. I want His approval. Indeed, verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, you know now the rest of the chapter is going to give example after example of people in the Bible and in the past who demonstrated that kind of faith, that kind of certitude. I'm not going to go through all those like I mentioned, but you know, people like Abraham and, and Abel and Noah and so many others, Moses. I mean, these are the stories we love. And all of them have something in common. They refused to take what they could see, quote, with their eyes and live their lives based on that. They lived their lives based on a certitude of what they could not see because of the evidence all around them and because of the promises God had given them. And because they did, they were commended. They were approved by God. What I want to do now is kind of skip ahead in the story and go all the way down to verse 32. 
Here, the author is going to start moving kind of rapid fire through these different examples of faith. But you're going to notice right in the middle of this section, there's going to be a major shift. And this is where my burden is for us this morning, okay? I, we, we love these stories, and rightfully so. But I want you to see a major shift and two examples. If you're on your notes, here's what I would say. Hebrews 11 gives two distinct pictures of faith. And that's what I want to look at this morning. What is faith when it's lived out in this world? The first group is what we might call success stories. These are the ones we love. I mean, these are the ones my kids want me to read to them, you know, as bedtime stories at night. And they have two characteristics that hold them in common. I want you to listen for them. If you know their stories, just listen. Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. Let's just pause here. Maybe you're unfamiliar with some of these people. Gideon's story is told in Judges 6 and 7. He is most famous for taking 300 men. God whittles down his army down to 300 men. He says, I want you to go into battle with those 300 men against impossible odds. Gideon wins an amazing victory. The story of Barak is in Judges 4 through 5, under the inspiration of the prophetess Deborah. In a similar way, Barak takes 10,000 ill-equipped soldiers to fight against impossible odds, 900 chariots. It'd be like an unarmed infantry trying to fight off a unit of tanks. And yet, somehow, against impossible odds, they are able to come out victoriously. The story of Samson, who doesn't know Samson, right? Strong, long hair, all that stuff. Well, Samson, uh, in many ways, kind of wasted his life, didn't he? And yet, there were times when he did these amazingly impossible things. He, at the end of his life, he repents for some of the things he's done, and God brings him great triumph uh, over the Philistines. The story of Jephthah, that's not one we're as familiar with. Jephthah uh, is in Judges 11 and 12, and he's the he's story, interesting, he's an illegitimate son, who's cast away from the people of Israel. He becomes an outlaw. However, once trouble comes on the land, guess who they call back to help? And Jephthah is able to help. He overcomes again these amazing odds, and he helps the, the nation of Israel. Unfortunately, Jephthah is most famous for making a rash vow that cost him his daughter's life. And then David, uh, we know David, right? David was a shepherd boy, and surprise of all surprises, he is the one chosen over all of his brothers to become king. And you want to talk about facing giant odds. He did that literally, didn't he? In the slain of Goliath. And then Samuel, I always think that's interesting, Samuel's here. But really, think about his story. He's a miracle. He's born late in life to his mother. And like so many other prophets, he went speaking the truth to these rebellious people in Israel. He stood alone. Uh, for God in a time when that was difficult to do. What do all these people have in common? Friends, you've probably heard it, but verses 33 through 35 kind of give us some hints here. It goes on to say, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions. Who's that talking about? Daniel. Quenched the fury of the flames. Who's that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't be afraid. I don't bite. I really, I really don't. And escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Do you know who that's referring to? Elijah and Elisha. You know, they are able to resuscitate the widow's two sons back to life. Man, these are awesome stories, aren't they? We love them, and we should love them. 
And they have two things in common I want to point out to you. First of all, they are of people who God used even in their imperfection. If you're on your notes, God used even in their imperfection, this first group of people. Now, we love to think of these people all as these amazing heroes. And in some ways they are, but i got to tell you, Gideon was a scaredy cat. Barak lost out on even greater glory because of his weak faith. Samson, I already said it, he wasted his life. Jephthah made a rash vow that cost him his daughter. David, we know, was an adulterer and a murderer. Samuel wasn't so good of a dad. He really wasn't. And yet, even with all those imperfections, each of those people's share an imperfection, God still used them. And I believe in the church today, there is a message we need to hear from that. There is a message we need to hear. Now, our lives are probably not going to include the kind of dramatic events like it did uh, for these people, but surely, Surely, as he has done all throughout history, God is going to invite you and me into his work in this world. And the question becomes, will I step out in faith even in my imperfections? You see, I think one of the biggest lies Satan speaks to believers today, and tell me this doesn't happen to you, is these lies of, well, I'm not good enough to be used by God. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not whatever enough. Have you ever heard these? I hear them all the time. I hear them all the time. And the truth is, you're right. But our God is big enough. Our God is smart enough. And our God gives us gifts to be used. I love what Betty Reese says about this. She said, you got to listen to this carefully. If you think you are too small to be effective, you have never been in bed with a mosquito. In a similar way, friends, no Christian empowered by the Holy Spirit of God is too small to be effective for his kingdom. Amen? So when those moments come, and they're going to come in your life, they might come every day in small ways, will you step out in faith? Will you step out in faith? Don't let your imperfections keep you from being used by God. Second thing all these people had in common, and this is probably we see there in verse 34, is that they experienced their weakness being turned into strength, if you're following. They experienced their weakness being turned into strength. Listen, these people were faced with impossible odds. There's no way we should have any stories of victory here, and yet they're all stories in one way or another of them overcoming impossible odds with God's help. It was because of their faith. It was because of their loyalty that God came alongside of them and gave them victory. He gave them triumph. And this is another good lesson for us. God loves to bring triumph. He loves to bring triumph in his church for his kingdom through people of faith. God empowers those who show faith. Faith pleases God. All these people started out on the margins. They looked like they were about to be defeated. They faced overwhelming gods, and yet, because of their faith, they found victory. And friends, isn't it true? These are the stories we love to hear, right? Stories of triumph. It's like when someone shares with you, you know, I've been battling cancer my whole life for the last two years. I went to the doctor. They said, I have two months to live. I prayed. I fought. I believed. And now I'm cancer-free. And we go, yes, triumph. And we should. We should celebrate. God still does those things. However, 
However, and you knew this was coming, there's a big problem in the Christian church today, and that's really what I want to address this morning. You see, if that is where your understanding of faith ends, if it's always this, it's going to be a triumph, it's going to be a triumph, it's going to be a triumph, you're doomed. If you just have enough faith, if you just believe enough, if, if that's your understanding of faith, i got to tell you, faith doesn't always look that way. Joni Erickson Tata, many of you are familiar with her. Many of your lives have been changed because of her works and her writings. At the age of 17, was swimming. She dove into the Chesapeake Bay, hit her head, was paralyzed from the neck down, and is still today a quadriplegic. She's in a wheelchair. And yet she has triumphed in many other ways uh, for the glory of Christ's kingdom. But however, the, what's interesting, she writes about when her friends would come and visit her immediately after that. They were well-meaning, just like Job's friends. And they would come to her and say, if you really have faith in God, God will heal you. If you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. There are people who teach that still today. Still today. But the problem with that conception of faith is that their definition of faith ends in the middle of verse 35, right? All these stories of triumph, all these stories of victory, but thankfully for Joni Erickson Tata, thankfully for us today as the church, Hebrews 11 doesn't end in the middle of verse 35. And what we're going to see is a second group of people, friends, who were faithful. They trusted God just as much as that first group did, and yet they didn't triumph. They didn't overcome. They faced tragedy and suffering, and persecution, and hardship. Read the rest of verse 35 with me on your notes there. It says, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. I'll keep going. Listen to these stories. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Would you say there's a little bit of a change in the middle of verse 35 in these stories? In the Greek, it's just as pronounced as in the English. It starts with that word, others. There were others. There were others who had faith, who had hope that God would fulfill his promises. And yet, their stories don't end in triumph, in victory. They end from all earthly perspectives in tragedy. Tragedy. If you're following there, the second group had faith, but their lives ended in tragedy, not triumph. And keep on your notes there, because here's the point of all this. Having faith doesn't assure a carefree life. Do you know that? Jesus told us that. He said, listen, if you're going to have faith in me, it almost guarantees some trouble. It almost guarantees some hardship. It almost guarantees you're going to be up against it at times. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 4. Let's read these, out, these words out loud together. It says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. I love that verse. Because sometimes we do think something strange happening to us. Because I'm supposed to have victories and triumph if I really have enough faith, right? But listen, 
History is full of examples of people like Peter, who, yes, was in prison and was miraculously released by the angel, and yet there's history full of stories of people like John the Baptist, who had just as much faith as Peter, yeah? And yet he was beheaded in prison. We talked about David. I mean, that's the story we love, right? It says in the Bible, David lived to a ripe old age. Amen. Chalk it up. That's what a life of faith deserves and gets. That's what I want, God. Thank you so much. And yet, right alongside David, there's his best friend, one of my personal heroes. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan was an amazing man of integrity and character, and you want to talk about some faith. That guy had faith, and yet, even with that faith, he lost everything, including his life. Some of the people we read in those verses, I mean, they don't come immediately to mind who they're referring to, do they? Why? Because we don't like these stories. I don't want to hear about Zechariah, who was stoned to death. I don't want to hear about Jeremiah, who that's the same thing that happened to him. You know that reference to someone being sawn in two? You know who that's talking about? Jewish history says that Isaiah was sawn in two by the king Manasseh. Some of these other examples, we have no idea uh, who the author is referring to, but i got to tell you, if we were receiving this letter as the church, we would immediately know these words would spark memories, and most of them are referring uh, to the time in between the Testaments. You know, there's 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament, and sadly, we don't know a lot about that period anymore today, and that's to our shame. We should, because it's writing about these amazing people of faith called the Maccabeans. Have you ever heard of the Maccabeans? These people who stood up against one of the most evil rulers ever. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. I tried my best. He was the Syrian king. He came in, conquered Israel, and he was brutal. One of the things he used to do is he would bring Jewish families into the public square and he would demand that they either renounce their faith or eat some unclean food, you know, that Jews had the law, to go against their law and to swear loyalty to him, to worship him alone. And if they didn't, they would suffer some of the most severe torture and consequences you can imagine. In fact, what most people think this uh, is referring to here in Hebrews 11 is a story in 2 Maccabees 7. 2 Maccabees 7 tells of a story of a mother and seven of her sons who were dragged into the public and Antiochus would take each of the sons and he would ask them this question, will you disobey the law of God? Will you worship me? And if they didn't, the king had his tongue cut out, his limbs chopped off, had him scalped, and then still breathing, still alive, had him roasted alive over a fire in front of all his brothers and mother. When one of them was dead, he would turn to the next son and say, what about you? And 2 Maccabees 7 tells that the mother stood there and encouraged her sons to die courageously. How could she do that? Now, I don't apologize to you if you're like, why, why does he have to share all this gore? Because we live such safe and comfortable lives as the American church today. In fact, we think something's wrong if that's not what we're experiencing. And yet, I hope you understand, around the world right now, there are churches gathering who face this exact same thing. There are brothers and sisters who every day are put up against it. Is it because they have less faith than we do? Oh, no. No, not at all. I was reading uh, 
third world theologian. I mean, so much of our theology is framed today as the church, right? But by our own world, by the Western world. And I was reading a third world theologian, and I want to share this quote he wrote. This really hit home for me. If you look up on the screen. The church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is an inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. Is that not true? That's so true of me. I deserve this, God. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth. Now here's the key. For God intends us to grow through trials. Ugh. But yes. And what gets us through trials? It's a right theology of suffering. It's called faith. Most cultures, most centuries, they were only a step away from this. And I got to tell you, I, I don't know. I, we could be coming to that day. We could be coming to that day. And here's the point I want to make, right? The people on the second list had just as much faith as the people on the first list. And yet, for some reason, their faith was refined in a different way. There was no intervention, there was no escape, there was no miracle. And I love how Tim Keller puts it, though. And I put this on your notes here. You can even write his name next to this. He said, a faith that doesn't require success is the ultimate success. That's what this chapter is all about. A faith that doesn't require success. It doesn't require God's blessing, prosperity, safety, comfort. That's the ultimate success. It means that while many on the first list experience great miracles, triumph, and that's great, Many others didn't, and they had the same amount of faith. And the reason a mother could stand there and tell her sons to die courageously, or the reason Isaiah could be sawn in two and remain faithful to the Lord, the reason Zechariah and others of the prophets could take abuse upon abuse upon abuse is because, if you're following on your notes there, they all believed in a resurrection to come. That is the only thing that could get them through. How could you face this stuff? How can we, if it comes our way, it's by believing in a better resurrection. Did you see that in the middle of this verse? Verse 35, look at it on your notes. A better resurrection. What is that? It's faith, again, going back to our definition of a certitude that this world is not the end. That there awaits for us an eternity in the presence of God because that's what he's promised and when God promises something he fulfills his promises that's why a mother losing her seven sons can stand firm and persevere that's why in fact look at how this chapter ends here in verse 39 these were all commended for their faith all of them not just the first list all of them Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's interesting. Even the stories of the people of victory, like Abraham and Daniel 
end in tragedy, don't they? They die. We all are going to die. It's the tragedy of the human life. And yet, they were looking forward to a better resurrection. A resurrection that came true in the life and person and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who now ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God's glory and power and authority. And he gives us hope that what God says will come to pass. That's how you can stand firm no matter what comes your way. Listen, imagine, go back first century right now. Imagine you're this struggling church reading this letter. Just picture yourself here, right? This author, it's probably a friend of yours or a pastor or someone, you know, maybe Paul, whoever, is, is encouraging you to persevere and he gives you all these stories of the past and he starts with all these stories of victory. And I'm sure he's like, I hope that's what takes place in your life. I really do. I hope God brings you through in great triumph. But listen, faith isn't about victories or triumph. It's about perseverance, even when the victories don't come. And so he gives them this second list of people. He says, listen, it's going to get hard, but here's the point. These people had faith, even though they were looking for something way in the future. You know the future is here. Christ has come, and he has risen from the dead, and because he has, we know we too can have a better resurrection. Not only that, we have way better resources than they ever will, won't we? You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got the Word of God. You've got community of believers. You have spiritual armor to stand any attack. I mean, what have we been learning in, in Hebrews here? We have a great high priest. We have inward purification, freedom from fear, present and eternal salvation, certain hope, clear conscience, assured pardon, constant access to God through Jesus Christ. So listen, if they could stand firm by faith, how much more can we? When it comes down to it, if you believe all the way down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I mean, if you really believe he rose from the dead, you can face anything in this world, no matter what comes your way. Because this world is not our end. It no longer has to end in tragedy for us as human beings. All of us can end our lives in triumph. Even from the world's perspective, it may not look that way. We know that God fulfills his promise. And his promise is that we will be with him forever in eternity. And because that is true, we, that means two things for us today. And this is how I'll close. Number one. Faith in a better resurrection means for the Christian, it is better to suffer with God than to prosper with the world. Do we really believe this as the American church? Thankfully, right now, we don't have to know, right? But we can't be so naive anymore as Christians to think that God is going to continue to keep his hand of safety and security and prosperity upon us as his people. He's always used trials to refine people of God. I'm not trying to scare you right now. I'm trying to prepare us. It might not happen in our generation. But man, we're raising the next generation, aren't we? And the generation after that, and the generation after that. And we want to instill on them that we think it's better to suffer with God than to prosper with the world. How do we do that? We have faith. We have faith, a certitude that God promised what he promised. 
And we will be in his presence forever. We look forward and we look up. Number two, it means this. It means our hope is in the future, not the present. I mean, these things are related, aren't they? Look at Hebrews eleven thirteen. if you still have your Bible open there. All these people, I mean, all these stories were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting, and I love this, this is, should be our attitude as Christians. They were foreigners and strangers on earth. Just strangers. We're just here for a time. It's not our home. Go down to verse 16. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared a city for them. That's the hope we have in the future. God has prepared a city for those who stand firm and persevere in faith. That means no trial, no momentary affliction. In fact, no prosperity, no security will ever compare to what we have waiting for us with him in all eternity. That's the reward for those who live by faith. That's Hebrews 11. No wonder it's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Amen? And here's the question it asks each of us. If there is a better resurrection, I don't know what you think about the resurrection of Jesus, but if you believe that really took place, historically, really, actually took place, Jesus rose from the dead and conquered the ultimate tragedy, which is sin and death. If you really believe in the resurrection, will I stay faithful to Jesus no matter what? You can only answer that for yourself, friends. But he wants to help us in that, amen? He's given us resources to do that very thing. You're not left on your own. And for that, we are grateful. Let's pray. Lord, in many ways, this is a hard message, but in other ways, it's the most encouraging message we could ever hear. Hard because you don't promise us a carefree life. You never have. And yet encouraging that this life is not our own. It's not the end. It's not worth living for the momentary pleasures and prosperity we can have here. What's worth living for is the hope we have of a future guaranteed with you. And so, Lord, help us to put off things in our lives that may hinder us from seeking the prize. Help us to examine ourselves now as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord. What are we really living for? Help us to be, whether we're experiencing triumph or tragedy in our lives, help us to be faithful. We already prayed it once today. I got to pray it every day. Increase our faith, Lord. And we pray together in Jesus' name, amen.